there are a number of different roles that have proven successful. Operational profiles work, finance profiles work, folks with a strategy mind that has worked as well. What hasn't flexed much for those that are successful is the influencing style. So the CTO cannot be a hammer looking for a nail that loses steam, that feels like a cost reduction program, not something that's truly inspirational. So it's having different operating modes so you can deal effectively and build trust across the C-suite. I think that element is consistent, but the background could vary. From McKinsey and Company, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Kevin Carmody, one of our guests today, highlighting a key skill of the modern chief transformation officer, the ability to persuade and influence. The role of the CTO has often been linked with cost cutting, and this is a misleadingly narrow view. In today's conversation, we'll expand on the themes in our recent article, which is available in the show notes, and explain why and how CTOs should correct that misconception and redefine the role. Kevin is a senior partner in our Chicago office and a founder of our transformation practice. In addition to serving clients on their transformation agendas, he's also served in a number of interim CTO roles. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. We also have A.D. Bartia, a partner in our New Jersey office and the leader of our North America consumer transformation practice. A.D., it's great to have you with us today. Thanks, Sean. It's great to be here. And finally, Emily Rizzi is an associate partner based in our Pittsburgh office and a leader in our North America consumer transformation practice. Emily, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Sean. Uh, Kevin, you co-authored an article recently with AD and Emily on ways to redefine the CTO role. Maybe a good place for us to start today is to simply define transformation in the context of this role. Terrific. Transformation today is now a widely used term that defines how companies fundamentally change the way that they operate. And we've spent a lot of time talking to companies in a variety of industries, and the, the consistency across how transformation has evolved has really been a catalyst to help companies drive change has been truly fantastic. No longer about cost reduction, which is uh, we think what many people might immediately characterize transformation as. We try to uh, think of it more holistically, which means how does it touch every aspect of the business? Starting with the strategic framework, which basically says, what is the company that you want to become and where do you want to compete in specific markets? And then making sure that that strategy actually informs very specific performance objectives. When we say holistically, it cuts across the entire organization, really across four specific pillars. The first one is growth competing in markets more effectively, maybe entering new markets, it can include pricing uh, as well. The second one is cost, but not so much cost reduction, but more about cost optimization to right-size organizations, but really to generate cash to invest in the pillars, starting with growth. The third piece is organization, not only how companies are structured, kind of sticks and boxes in a classic sense, but also the skills and capabilities that are required throughout the organization to make your workforce even more um, effective, helping them enjoy their jobs uh, more as they come to work each day, but having a formal program that goes beyond the C-suite down to what we call the frontline worker. And finally, systems, which basically says, how do you uh, make sure you have the right ERP to run your business, but also digitally, how are you interfacing in all aspects of your business? And what we found is by uh, defining transformations in more of a holistic manner across these four pillars that is directly tied to the strategy, those companies that have done that right 
not only have gotten out of the gate quicker, but they've been more successful. So transformation, at least in the 10 years that we've been doing it formally at McKinsey has tra- changed dramatically as the definition has expanded. Interesting. That's, that's great. So what are the typical catalysts now that lead a CEO to launch a transformation beyond the sort of assumed uh, cost reduction? AD? Sean, the most common thing that I've heard, the sentiment is what got us here isn't going to get us there. Business as usual got us to where we are today. And either because we're responding to a financial challenge or because we see a need for our business model to change or because we see a need to energize our our workforce, either in general or coming back from two or three years of remote work in the pandemic, there's all sorts of impetus that has led companies to say, we need a different approach. And that's where transformation comes in. So it can mean different things depending on the context of the company. But the common thread is we need to do something different than we've done up to this point. And transformation is a good way to shake things up. Okay, so before we get to the discussion of the CTO's role, what are some of the common elements that you find in companies that successfully execute real transformations? And how do they define their objectives going in? So one thing is we think about transformations and we've taken a look at hundreds of companies that have gone through this type of a program. There are really five outcomes that have defined companies that are truly cutting edge and transformative. And the first one may be the most important And it talks to how executive teams deliver performance that ties to investor expectations. Notably, what we're seeing is more and more companies that do this formally, that really launch a transformation program, start with not only strategy, but they also start with the messaging that needs to be communicated to the marketplace. So think about how the transformation is is structured and launched, how that fits into uh, not only a financial algorithm that can convert the big idea of strategy into actual results, in a way that executive teams are comfortable taking that outside of the four walls of their company and then communicating to investors on investor day or other uh, communications over time. The second point really talks about the need for speed and accuracy in, in both fronts. What we see is when transformations are done right, holistically engaging more people, two things happen. In the first instance, we're identifying behaviors very quickly that should be celebrated. And that's a key part of the transformation program. It's a very constructive and positive orientation. But if folks are doing things right deep into the organization, we want to identify that. We want to communicate it so more people can benefit from that. Used to be called best practices. And then equally important, and this happens in in the transformations, when we see that there's potential pitfalls that are happening, we want to recognize that sooner. So there's a lot of trial and error in these types of programs, but we want to understand the risks so we can get ahead of that faster and then course correct. But both the positive and the developmental aspect of, of making sure that you have the right transparency with a focus on speed and accuracy has really driven, driven success. The third point is probably the one area that I spend the most amount of time talking about, and that is empowering line leaders who are trusted, they're motivated, they're usually closest to the action, And we want to incentivize them to effectively be an owner of the business as opposed to going through the motions, if you will. If you want to do something bold and really achieve performance that was unattainable in prior years, decades for that matter, getting more people involved in an organization to own a piece of the transformation is important. That doesn't mean increasing risk. What it says is we want to engage their thinking because they're closest to the actions, but we do it in a way where there's basic governors in place so we don't put the enterprise at risk. But getting more people involved where it doesn't consume their day 
is a critical success factor. There's something around holding candid, action-oriented discussions across the organization that leads to better performance, builds trust, is, is, is really important. Making sure there's clarity around what the mission is. And the final point, the CTO in particular is uniquely positioned to help companies work across what I call the horizontal access, which basically says a CTO sees the entire playing field. So making sure that he is developing strong relationships with sponsors, executives in each of the silos of a company and how that works cross-functionally to get to a better outcome is really important. And in some cases, clients would say, it's not something we've done effectively uh, over time. The transformation has helped us develop that muscle. Um, one other question that comes to mind is just as you're about to embark on a transformation, there's got to be some goal setting and also identification of where to focus the transformational efforts. And Kevin, as you were talking about going across silos, that's obviously important, but is, is there some kind of an assessment that, or a specific diagnostic that takes place at the very beginning? And, and maybe Emily, you could take us through that. Yeah, yeah, of course. Great question. So we try to take it from an investor lens. So we actually will go in and do an investor style due diligence across the business. And I think the real difference here from some of the ways that companies might do this themselves is that we really take the outside in view and leave no stone unturned. And because we have that holistic view across the organization, we're actually able to kind of understand where there are opportunities within the seams. So when you think about different functions and how they interact, there's a lot of opportunity and inefficiencies that tend to come up in larger companies as they grow. And we're able to find some of those inefficiencies and find ways for companies to work better together. And really, that's how we do it. So it's the independent lens, no stone unturned, and taking a fact-based investor view of the world that helps to identify where there is opportunity in the company. Got it. And Emily, how long does that phase typically take? Yeah, it depends. We've done it quite short at some companies, and it can take a little bit of a longer time. I would say usually about a four-week period is fair. Thank you, Emily. Now, Kevin, let's turn back to you for a second. You, you described a really ambitious mandate. What does the chief transformation officer actually need to accomplish that and, and deliver a cutting-edge, high-performing transformation? Sure. The CTO at the onset has got to be empowered to lead the transformation. By empowerment, I mean the CEO empowering the CTO to, to do something different because this is typically a new role and it's, it's new to the C-suite and sometimes it's challenging. At the onset, I would make sure the CTO on day one is set up for success because typically there's some organ rejection, good natured, but organ rejection on the role of the CTO. So having the full support of the CEO critical, having the CTO report directly to the uh, CEO also critical. A couple of other points. We have this concept of full potential. There's a statistic that we've looked at over time that says companies that have gone through a transformation and they've outlined a big, bold objective, similar to what Emily just mentioned. In many cases, the value that is identified in that diligence phase is roughly 2.7 times greater than what management teams have created as part of their annual planning process over time. So it's a big, bold change. That's what we mean by the full potential, looking at the entire company. If I think about the role of the CTO, it really is a convener of the transformation. Interestingly, the CTO typically does not have PL responsibility like a COO, which makes that role exceptionally difficult if it's not approached in the right way. So the CTO's role in the first instance is to convene the broader organization, develop deep relationship with the CEO, 
and the executive sponsors to make sure that the team works together more effectively. I talked a bit about the horizontal axis a minute ago. The CTO is right at the center of that, making sure that folks are working together better so they get to a, a more effective outcome. A key determinant of that CTO's success is how quickly he or she can develop that trusted relationship where other executives on the C-suite don't see him as a threat, but sees him as part of the solution. So that's hard to do, but needs to be done uh, immediately. The fourth talks a little bit about financial performance or operational performance and health improvements. So CTO should always be looking at this from the standpoint of, I've got a target I've got to drive, but I also have to engage the broader organization. So when we talk about health, that basically is something as simple as saying, if I have 200 people that are directly impacting transformation, that are directly accountable for a small piece of that transformation, do we have the skills or do they have the skills they need to succeed? And if not, what is something very specific that we can put in place to help train them more effectively, build skills, focus on capabilities, but it's tangible. It's actually helping these folks do a more effective job day to day. And then the final point is, it's sometimes difficult and a lonely job to be a CTO because they are at the front and they're the, of, the, of the transformation, they're the face of the change. And early in a transformation, these are very difficult things to do and making sure they stick to it and have the full support of the executive team is really important. Making sure that the CTO has a couple of different operating models to relate to executives, to relate to line managers, to relate to frontline workers is important because we're helping them do difficult things. And sometimes that means celebrating great performance. And other times it means actually calling folks out. Are you actually doing what you said you're going to do? If not, let's work through it. Kevin, you talked about how important it is that the CTO cuts across all of the silos in an organization. So who do the initiative owners then report to? Do they report in directly to the CTO or are they embedded in the business functions? And how does the governance differ when an organization is in a transformation compared to their normal course of business? Maybe I'll start briefly by saying it's a pyramid. So you've got the CTO at the top, that small team that executes the transformation day to day. And below that, you've got executive sponsors that own a large chunk of the transformation. Then you've got what we call line leaders that basically are day-to-day -day running the piping of the transformation. And then you have the initiative owners. And by definition, the initiative owners should be deeper in the organization and should be closest to the action. So an example I, I often use at a CPG company in a production facility is we had a third shift line supervisor that was driving uh, performance on a production line. She saw that there was waste on that line. And she wanted to fix it. She'd been at the company for a while, didn't feel like she's empowered to change the way that production line operated. Now she looked at it differently. She eliminated material waste, most of that waste on that line because she was engaged in a different way. She felt like she actually owned a piece of the transformation. It worked. And then throughout the entire plant, everybody heard about it, right? So that's an example of somebody that is close enough to the action that has a solution in their mind, but never felt like her voice mattered. The executive team and the CTO empowered her. She did something fantastic. It resulted in, in real progress and elimination of waste. And it took notice. It's moments like that throughout a transformation that really is a rallying cry. And the difference with that initiative owner was we engaged her because she was closest to that problem. But we also had enough governance in place to make sure that she wasn't going to compromise safety on that production line. Sure. Thanks, Kevin. Um, Emily, AD, anything you'd like to add here? Well, Sean. What Kevin described is important at the start of a transformation and in the early months of a transformation. 
right? Create new mechanisms for people to bring ideas or get visibility. We often say in a transformation, anybody anywhere in the organization is no more than three days away from a great idea being seen by the top team if necessary, which is very different than business as usual. So you need that upfront to spur the change. But over time, you want the transformation to be integrated into the business as usual of the company. Right? Maybe there's the next mountain to climb. That's sort of phase two of the transformation. But ultimately, these things come together and transformation reporting gets integrated into regular financial reporting. There's many other examples of that. But it does require that change, the different governance structure, the different empowerment upfront in order to get this started. One point I would just add on to that, you know, there was a good part of that question, Sean, which was around how does the transformation government governance differ from the day to day? And to AD's point, just to underscore it, the ideal state is they merge, right? And what we found is that through transformations, you're actually increasing really the metabolic rate of how companies are able to execute and create that infrastructure so that folks can do it on their own over time. And it really is just how we work, right? It's not it's not transformation. It is truly how we work as a business. Okay. So does that mean that in your view, a transformation is really a continuous journey or something that perhaps stays embedded in a company over the long term? Or are transformations more of a temporary time-bound program going after very specific and measurable goals? I, yeah, I, I I would agree with the sentiment that it sounds like you're hearing, Sean. It definitely is becoming more of a, this is how we work and this is this is an ongoing element of the business, right? I think what we're finding is with the pace of change that companies are facing and I think the opportunity that they are finding that they can um, capture through transformation and the and the kind of processes, rituals, ways of working, empowerment that come with it, um, companies are making it really part of their day to day. I think as an example, we've seen a lot of companies really merge their core traditional strategy function with the transformation um, elements and transformation offices. And what that enables them to do is to merge their future vision with the execution engine. And that's and that's really where we see it becoming very powerful. And the last one, I, I, I agree with all that. I would say ongoing is probably best practice, uh, refilling a pipeline over time. It gets easier as the muscles develop. But the role of the CTO in particular has a shelf life. So I think you want a high-performing, highly engaged, multifaceted, multi-talented uh, executive to take that role. But after 18 or 24 months, Ideally, you want that person to move to a different role, and that could be that could be COO, could be the CEO, could be different areas, had a strategy, but there is a shelf life um, just in the role because it's hard. But also, what that individual is seeing across an organization is true currency can help other parts of the business be even more successful. So, I think a rotation in the CTO role is really healthy. To your point, Kevin, what's the typical background of a successful CTO? So the short answer is it's uh, there are a number of different roles that have proven successful. Operational profiles work, finance roles, r- profiles work, uh, folks with a strategy mind that has worked as well. What hasn't flexed much for those that are successful is the influencing style. So the CTO uh, contrast cannot be a hammer looking for a nail that loses steam. That feels like a cost reduction program, not something that's truly inspirational. So it's having different operating modes so you can deal effectively and build trust across the C-suite. I think that element is consistent, but the background could vary. Thanks, Kevin. I I know the role hasn't been around that long as part of the C-suite, but has it evolved much in that time? And is it more common now for companies to have sort of permanently appointed CTOs? 
a few quick points. We, we pulled some statistics of some of the top consumer packaged goods and retail companies that we've looked at that had CTOs, a couple of interesting points. And this is in North America. 23% of these top companies had a CTO that was embedded in the C-suite, so one in four. 35% had CTOs that were at a vice president level or higher, which I think is good. It came from zero 10 years ago to either a quarter or a third based on how you measure it. I would say the challenge, though, is this, this is real progress, but not enough. I think making sure, as we've said, that the CTO is properly empowered in the C-suite, that you double the percentage of CTOs that are at these companies that are doing something bold should be the aspiration. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, AD, a quick question for you. Uh, earlier, Kevin mentioned five outputs of successful transformations. And I'd like to sort of just wind back a little bit on that and explore whether there are specific inputs that we need to look to to produce those outputs. I guess I'm asking, are there any particular ways that companies can best prepare as they're about to embark on a successful transformation? Thanks, Sean. So we went back and looked at over a decade's worth of transformations to distill the elements that the most successful ones had in common. And we found six things. The most successful transformations start with the absolute highest ambition. So as Emily talked about, they take an objective and fact-based look at what their full potential is. This isn't simply about throwing a big number against the wall for shock and awe, but it is about getting people to move past their long-standing biases. It's about getting people to think beyond incremental improvement. So if you're asking, how can we do this 3 to 5% better than we did last year? That's not transformative. If you're asking, how could we be twice as good at this as we've been in the past? That's transformative. And so what we found is the best transformations have set out to achieve financial goals that would have represented almost as much as their trailing 12 months EBITDA. And as Kevin said, it's often two to three times what management teams thought was possible before they did the full potential exercise. To set the highest ambition, these companies then ensured that the transformation is a top priority for the company, not just a project on the side. And so how does that show up? It shows up in the way the CEO talks to the board and to the street. It's a substantial part of executives' incentive compensations. That's a big one that not a lot of companies get right. And then it's led by an executive who is an unquestioned peer to the rest of the executive team, the CTO. So transformation requires the senior most leaders to show up, not just pay lip service. So the top team is critical, but the top team is not sufficient. The most successful transformations will mobilize, engage, and rally the organization. 8 to 20% or more of the workforce, which could be hundreds, if not thousands of people. Each of them owns a little piece of the transformation. They're consistently bringing new ideas forward. They're getting them approved. They're getting them executed. And so that does a couple of things. One, it diversifies risk. When you have 68% of your transformation value driven by smaller initiatives, you can have one or two or 10 or 20 of them not go exactly as anticipated, and you can manage your way through that. It's not quite the same when you have 10 major initiatives, each representing 10 or 20 or $50 million. The second thing this does is it creates a sustaining mechanism. So Kevin's example, when you have somebody on the plant floor that comes up with an idea, that gets a light shone on it, that gets that executed, and then gets a 30-second call from the CEO to say, hey, I saw what you did, and we all appreciate it, 
you can bet that everybody on the floor around that person looks over and says, hey, I want to be a part of that. I've got some ideas as well. And that grows over time. Those last two are the ones that tend to be most counterintuitive for our clients. Shouldn't we just focus on the 10 big things? Shouldn't we just focus on the 20 high potentials that we've identified? Can't we just do this if we have the right leadership team in place? Won't this just be anarchy if we have hundreds of people running around? Successful transformations will have the structure, the process, the systems, the leadership, the CTO, to orchestrate all of these people once they're mobilized. Make sure decisions get made, make sure roadblocks get cleared, and make sure that the clock speed of the organization increases. So these companies build a three-year pipeline, and then they execute three-fourths of that value within the first 12 months, very far from what business as usual looks like. But most of your employees, I'll bet, are not showing up to work every day saying, how do I add 10 basis points of EBITDA to the company? And so when you can tap into hearts and minds, give people a reason to show up and be a part of the change. Show them that you're investing in them to build new skills, to make this change endure over time. That leads to twice the financial results of when you don't do that. So sweating the small stuff or the soft stuff actually leads to hard results. Thank you. That makes a ton of sense. And the, and the CTO who has to oversee all this, does their role always have the same structure and responsibilities or does the role vary according to the nature of the transformation or the industry? Um, or even the geography. So the extent of change, the relative importance of those six factors can vary depending on the nature of the transformation. And accordingly, the mandate of the CTO can change as well. So in our research, we found three archetypes of CTOs. First archetype of a chief transformation officer is a responder. This is usually the CTO for a company that has faced a major financial challenge and needs to move quickly to recover. It's a little bit morbid, but it's the get the patient out of the ICU archetype, if you will. These folks tend to be heavily focused on financial performance in this fiscal and the next fiscal, 12 to 18 months. They care about capabilities, but they usually prioritize execution and speed as the chief capabilities to build. They're on a quest for every dollar of value, every initiative, no matter the size. They're teaching the organization to spend money like it's their own. From a mindset and tone perspective, they tend to focus on finding the edge. Now, I will say there's a, there's a caricature of the chief transformation officer as somebody who gets up on the table, who yells and screams, fire and brimstone. To be honest, we think that's way overblown and not actually productive. But if you see it anywhere, this is the situation and this is the archetype in which you would see it. You know, folks in this role, in the responder role, you will see a lot of former CFOs in that spot. So that's the responder. The second archetype is a revitalizer. So where do we see these? I'll take an example from the consumer sector where I spend a lot of my time. There are packaged goods companies that have gone through many rounds of belt tightening over the years. When zero-based budgeting was the flavor of the month, you can bet that they did that. But they find that they're doing it over and over again, every 18 months. And at some point they stop and say, hey, we need a more permanent form of change, something that can endure. And so that's where this archetype comes into play. You'll see a more expansive focus on building new mindsets, new behaviors, creating a transformation that draws people in rather than scaring them away. And you'll see CTOs in this situation that are great at rallying and energizing the organization. The cheerleaders in a sense. We had a CTO that actually all three of us had worked with who said, 
my superpower is inspiring others to find the best in themselves and then giving them the confidence to turn that into action. I think that's emblematic of what you see in the revitalizer role. The third archetype is a reinventor. These CTOs tend to exist at companies that are fundamentally changing who they are, their business model, their strategy. As I said, you'll see folks here wearing the dual hat chief strategy and transformation officer in many of these cases. These transformations tend to focus on developing new functional capabilities. So we are going to be in a new channel. We're going to be in a new market. We're going to be in a new product category. We're going to have a different level of innovation. I suspect we'll see more and more of this as AI becomes a more and more relevant factor. Capabilities that simply don't exist within the organization that need to be built. This type of change by its nature is heavily cross-functional. And so the CTOs in these situations tend to be connectors and influencers. I think Kevin used the word conveners. It's much less about the whip and much more about connecting the dots. And in terms of tone, it's about inspiring others. The vision of what's possible, the shining light on the hill of what the company is going to be and what people need to climb towards. So three archetypes. Now we'll cheat a little bit. We did find a fourth archetype. And it's present at too many companies, if we're honest. And so we call this the reporter. They might be a CTO in name, but they're a PMO in practice. They really focused on administration rather than driving a step function change in performance. Transformation is the type of change from which there is no going back. That's more than just managing a series of projects. Right? So reporters are focused on reporting the news, filling in the templates, red, yellow, green, that sort of thing. They're careful not to break glass. That can have its place. Its place is not in transformation, not in the way that we talk about it and mean it here. Interesting. So do CTOs tend to stay in one of the archetypes that you described throughout a transformation? Or do you see them sometimes shift or evolve, say from responder to revitalizer as the transformation progresses? It is not rare for companies and leaders to move between archetypes over the course of a transformation. There's sort of a traditional journey of a company that starts out responding to a financial challenge. They stabilize the business. They say, hey, this transformation thing is working. Let's see what else we can do with it. They move on to revitalizing. They move on to reinventing. And so you'll see, for example, different movements. You know, a retailer that is mid-reinvention when the pandemic hits. They need to shut down their stores. They need to move quickly into response mode. You might have a CPG that has just reinvented itself through a big acquisition and integration. They burned people out along the way. And so now they need to revitalize. They need to rebuild the culture. They need to rebuild and reinfuse energy. So you'll see people move back and forth. You'll see companies move back and forth. Thanks, AD. And so um, a question about just high-performing CTOs in general. Do they share any common characteristics across these archetypes? And if they do, what are, what are some of those common traits or characteristics for the really successful CTOs? First, first one seems very obvious, of course, but it's about being able to bring the objectivity, being able to have enough of an understanding of the different functions that are involved to play that unbiased role, to connect the dots. There's, there's value in the seams between the functions. The CTO who can find that is important. Then you get into influence, right? Being able to build trust and respect, 
being able to influence and motivate teams and leaders. You are a supporter of other executives' agendas. And in order to do that, you have to be curious. You have to be a listener. You have to go in with a learning mindset, as one CTO said to us. But the other side of that is you have to be able to challenge executives and hold them accountable. I'd say this is the fundamental sort of balance that a CTO needs to find. You are both a service provider and a whip or a holder of accountability. Not everybody is able to get that balance right. The most successful CTOs do. You have to be an energizer, bring out the best in others, and keep the organization's energy up over the course of the transformation. Whether that's 18 months, 24 months, or something longer, it can be a grind. And so keeping the organization motivated is an important part of a CTO's job. Okay, so I'm also wondering, you know, where the CTO's role fits within the organization in terms of other functions. So does the typical CTO um, have a sole focus on the transformation or do they often have other functions report to them at the same time? Sean, if we say it depends, does a consultant buzzer go off and we get dropped? Yeah. Um, it is rare to have a number of functions reporting into the CTO. And there's a good reason for that. The CTO is an all-encompassing job. If you think about the first six to nine months, navigating through understanding the full potential, getting hundreds of people going, making sure that those initiatives are moving, we see far too many CTOs who are stepping over into the role with part of their time, and they find very quickly that it's not enough. And then they need to adjust months into it. So there's something important about the time commitment it takes to truly change an organization, and that requires single-minded focus. Now, there might be other individual situations and nuances, but I would advise in general, if you're giving your CTO two or three different functions, it is very hard for them to play the role that they need. Thanks so much. And, and you know, many companies would say that they're already in the midst of a transformation. They're undergoing a constant evolution and they're just doing just fine without a CTO. Would be curious as to what your take is on that. You know, I would build on what Kevin said and actually ask the question as a challenge, which is, is the big, bold goal clear enough? Because transformation as a word and as a theme can get diluted. There are companies who will say, hey, we're always transforming. Anything we're doing is transformational. So the one question I would ask is, can you point to something that you can quantify that is the big, bold goal of the transformation? And if not, are you really transforming or are you using the word transformation to reference something that is a little bit different? Great. Thanks for that, AD. Emily, given that all-encompassing nature of the CTO job, what do transformation leaders need from their organizations? What have you heard during your interviews and, and client work? I think the the greatest challenge overall is competing priorities. And um, to AD's point, you know, do we have a very clear goal of the transformation? Do we have clarity around that? That really does help to drive competing priorities down. What we found is that the competing priorities are really at an enterprise level. It was it was rarely at the CTO's individual level. So I think the question around, you know, are there multiple functions reporting into the CTO was something we didn't typically find. But we did find at an enterprise level, those competing priorities did take away the focus from the transformation and driving impact. So having an overwhelming push for the organization as a whole to get behind and prioritize the transformation was extremely important. Now, on the flip side, 
for enablers for impact, the overwhelming uh, greatest enabler we found was cultural change. And I, I think we've underscored this a few times, but really getting at the heart of how and why people do what they do, upskilling people to understand to work in a different way, making sure that they have the capabilities to do so, helps to create an overall engine for living the transformation day to day. This is what's going to take you from a one-time instance to an ongoing way of working that everyone is involved within behind. So really important to drive some of the softer side of the transformation within the CTO role. All in all, if you look at these factors, I think something that's interesting is there were very rarely structural elements of the CTO role that came up as an enabler or challenger uh, for success, right? So things like resourcing didn't really come into play here, which we found quite interesting. It's really about getting the entire organization behind the transformation and focusing on changing the underlying um, ways of working and behaviors and mindsets that will help drive sustainable impact. Thank you. So if you were to list five things that the CTO needs to have in place before they launch a transformation program, what would they be? So first and foremost, it's unwavering support from the CEO. We discussed this earlier, but having the CEO visibly back the CTO and the decisions made by the CTO are critical. This uh, means really setting up the CTO as a peer to the rest of the C-suite. The second is a license to engage all employees. So involving all of your line leaders and helping them directly lead a piece of the transformation here will help you sustain impact over time. Third is a well, um, well-oiled execution engine goes hand in hand with engaging all employees. This is really the cadences and rituals that you set up as an organization to drive how we operate and how we execute. And finally, the last two, um, a robust incentive program is something that we found really does drive outsized performance in a transformation. And this can be both at the, the C-suite level as well as at the individual leader level. So at the individual initiative owner level, creating the incentives by which they will drive and execute their work. You should consider, you know, in a transformation, reinvesting a portion of the impact back to drive those outside gains. And finally, uh, focus on the soft stuff. So this is the hearts and minds, right? This is the why and the how we're doing what we're doing. Um, AD mentioned that when we do focus on some of these, these softer elements or the health elements, as we call them, we see outsized performance. Thanks so much, Emily, Kevin, AD. Really appreciate uh, all the thoughts that you shared with us today and, and for joining us and, and sharing your insights. This was really fun. Thanks, Sean. All right. We'd also like to thank all of our listeners for joining us today. If you want to learn more about how the CTO's role is changing, you can find the article and the link in the show notes. Um, as always, if you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, just email us at ITSR at McKinsey.com, which stands for Inside the Strategy Room. You can also share your ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast player, with many thanks to everybody who's already done so. We really appreciate all the comments and feedback and encourage you to keep them coming. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to subscribe, you can also follow our weekly series on your favorite podcast player. And that's where you can also access our entire library of previous episodes. We also offer an Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page available at mckinsey.com slash ITSR. You can easily search our prior podcasts there. They're organized across six major themes. And that's where you can also access written transcripts of all of those conversations. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest publications and insights, 
we encourage you to sign up on our Practice Insights pages at mckinsey.com SCF or follow us on Twitter or X at MCK Strategy or connect with us on LinkedIn at the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again next week inside the Strategy Room.